Her hazel eyes shone bright from the shade of her hood. While the brightness of that shine was no different from what I saw that first day in the labyrinth, it seemed to me that the nature of it had changed. But I've decided that I'm not fighting in order to die. Maybe I'm not quite optimistic enough to say that I'm doing it to live, to beat the game, but I've found one simple goal to strive toward. That's what I'm fighting for. Oh, really? What's your goal, to eat an entire cake of that? Tremble shortcake? I asked earnestly, Asuna sighed for some reason and said, Of course not. She turned to Neza again. I'm sure you can find your own reason. It's already inside. Of you. Something you ought to fight for. I mean, you left. The town of beginnings on your own two feet, didn't you? Neza looked down, but his eyes were not closed. He was staring at the leather boots on his feet. I realized that they were not non-functional shoes for wearing in town, but actual leather armor. It's true. There was something, he mumbled. Amid the resignation, it sounded like a tiny kernel of some kind, a burning ambition but he shook his head several times, as if trying to extinguish the flame. But it's gone now. It was gone before I even got here. That happened the day I bought this nerve gear. When I, when I tried the first connection test, I got an FNC. FNC. Full dive nonconformity. The full dive machine was an extremely delicate apparatus that sent signals back and forth to the brain with ultra-weak microwaves. It had to be finely tuned to work with each individual user. But of course, they were producing thousands and thousands of units for mass market use, and they couldn't spend ages of time on fine maintenance. The machine had an automatic calibration system that went through a long and tedious connection test on first use. Once that was done, and it knew the player's settings, you could dive in just by turning on the unit. But on very rare occasions, a person received a non-conforming response during that initial test. Perhaps one of the five senses wasn't functioning properly, or there was a slight lag in the communication with the brain. In most cases it was merely a slight obstacle but there were a few people who simply could not dive at all. If he was here in Aincrad, Neza's FNC couldn't have been that serious, but he would have been luckier if it had prevented him from playing. He wouldn't be trapped in this game of death. We packed up all the tools and items into the carpet and moved to an empty house near the plaza to continue hearing out Neza's story. In my case, I have hearing, touch, taste, and smell, but there's an issue with my sight. As he spoke, Neza reached out to the cup of tea Asuna left for him on the round table. But he did not immediately grab. It reached his fingers closer, and only when his fingertip brushed the handle did he carefully lift it up. It's not that I'm entirely blind, but I have a binocular dysfunction. It's hard for me to grasp distance. I can't really tell how far my avatar's hand is from the object. 
For an instant, I thought this didn't seem so bad, but I soon reconsidered. If SAO was an orthodox fantasy MMORPG, Neza's disability wouldn't be such a big deal. There were classes that had auto-hitting long-range attacks, a mage, for example. But SAO didn't even have archers, much less mages. Every player who fought in the game did so with a weapon in his hand. And whether sword, axe, or spear, the ability to judge distance, to tell exactly how far away the monster was, made all the difference in the world. The very cornerstone of combat here was understanding, on a physical level, how far your weapon could reach. Neza took a sip of tea and carefully returned the cup to the saucer. He smiled hollowly. Even hitting a stationary weapon on top of an anvil with my short little hammer is extremely difficult. So that was why you carried out the steps of the process. So painstakingly. Yes, that's why. Of course, I did also feel apologetic toward the swords I was breaking, but he looked back and forth at me and Asuna, smiling weakly. It might not be right for me to say this, but I'm impressed that you saw through my switching trick. But it wasn't just today, you remotely retrieved Asuna's wind floret plus four three days ago. So you must have known then. Oh, at that point, it was just a suspicion. At the time I noticed, the hour limit to maintain ownership was nearly up, so I had to burst into Asuna's bedroom and force her to use the materialize all items command, then. I felt a piercing stare from the right and narrowly avoided spilling the beans on what her inventory contained. The floret came back. That was when I knew you'd committed fraud, but it was two days ago that I figured out. You were using quick change to pull it off. The key was in. Your name, Neza, or should I say, Nataku. Neza, or Nataku, sucked in a sharp breath. His fists clenched and he even lifted up out of his seat for a moment. When he sat again, he looked straight down in shame. I had no idea you'd figured that out, too. Well, that required an information dealer to discover. I mean, even your friends and the legend braves were calling. Yunezuo. It means they didn't know either, did they? Why, you're named after Nataku. Just call me Neza. I picked that spelling because I wanted people to call me that, the blacksmith said. He nodded and began to explain. Yes, you're correct. Nataku. Also known as Naja, or Prince Nada. He was a boy god in the Ming period fantasy novel, Fengshen Yenyu. He used a variety of magical weapons. Called Pao Pei and flew through the sky on two wheels. He was every bit the legendary hero as Orlando or Beowulf. In the Western alphabet, the Chinese name was transliterated to Neza, but only a true fanatic of Eastern mythology would recognize that as a reference to Nataku. It would be especially difficult here, in Aincrad, without any internet search engines. I couldn't help but wonder what kind of brain trust Argo had in her network of contacts. At any rate, when I saw the blacksmith's true name at the end of her write-up on the 
Legend Braves, I finally had an epiphany. He did not join this game intending to be a crafter. He tried to be a fighter, but due to his circumstances, he was eventually forced to become a blacksmith. However, that meant that despite playing as a smith now, his weapon skills might already be above a certain level. Following that line of logic, I eventually hit upon the possibility that he was using the battle skill mod quick. Change to switch out weapons, and the rest was history. The Legend Braves are a team we formed for a different Nerve Gear action game three months before SAO came out, Neza explained after another sip of tea. It was a very simple game where you used swords and axes to fight off monsters in a straight line map and tried to get the high score, but even that was difficult for me. Because I had no perspective, I'd swing when the monsters were too far away, and then they'd come in close and hit me. The team could never get into the top ranks because of me. It wasn't like I knew Orlando and the others in real life, so I probably should have left the team or quit playing the game, but he clenched his fists again, his voice trembling. No one told me to leave the team, so I used that as an excuse to stick around. It wasn't because I liked that game. It was because we decided that we'd all switch over to the very first DRMMO, Sword Art Online, when it came out in three months. I really, really wanted to try out SAO. But because of the FNC, I didn't have the guts to start it up on my own. I was weak. I figured, if I got to be in Orlando's party in SAO, I might be able to grow stronger, even if I still couldn't fight that well. We could only sit in silence as we listened to his painful confession. It would be easy to say that I understood how he felt. The moment I saw the very first trailer for SAO, I swore to myself that I would play this game. Even if I'd had a worse FNC than Neza, I'd have gone in headfirst, as long as I was able to dive. But I couldn't say that aloud. I abandoned my very first friend back in the town of beginnings, someone seeking help, just like Neza. However he interpreted my silence, the blacksmith smirked in self-deprecation and continued his tale. I went by a different name in the previous game, I used a name that anyone would recognize as a hero, like Orlando or Cuchelaine. The reason I changed it to Neza was a sign of humility or flattery. I was trying to say, I won't call myself a great hero like you guys, so can I still stick around? When they asked what it meant, I said it was. Based on my real name, that was a lie, of course. Every time they call me Nezuo, I want to say that it's still a hero's name. I don't know, it's silly. Neither I nor Asuna denied or agreed with Neza's self-flagellation. Instead, a quiet question emerged from her hood, which was still up, even indoors. But then things changed when we got trapped in here, didn't they? You stopped venturing into the fields, and switched to crafting. As a blacksmith, you can still support your friends without fighting. But, why would you make the jump to swindling people? Whose idea was it in the first 
Place? Yours? Orlando's? She leapt to the point as quickly and accurately as if she were in battle. Neza had no response. When he did answer, it was a surprise. It wasn't me, or Orlando, or any of us. Huh. Then, who? For the first two weeks, I tried to cut it as a fighter. There's one skill, just one, that allows you to fight. Remotely, I thought I might be able to hack it that way, even without being able to judge distance. That didn't seem like it would work to me, but I explained. For Asuna's sake. Ah, the throwing knife skill. But that's... Kind of... Yes. I bought as many of the cheapest throwing knives as I could in the town of beginnings, hoping to train up my... Skill, but once I used up my stock, there was nothing I could do. Plus, the stones out in the field, you can throw. Hardly do any damage. So it wasn't really much use as a main weapon skill, I gave up once my proficiency reached. Fifty or so. And because the other braves stuck around too. Help me with that, we ended up getting off to a slow. Start. The legend brave's slow start was probably not due to. Them helping Neza train with throwing knives, but. Because the other beta testers and I rushed off at top speed. On the very first day and left everyone in the dust. I had a feeling Asuna would throw me some very dirty looks if I mentioned that, however, so I kept it to myself. Things got very tense when I said that I'd give up on learning how to use throwing knives. No one said it out loud, but I'm sure they were all thinking that the guild got off to a slow start because of me. Even after becoming a blacksmith, training a crafting skill takes a lot of money, it seemed like the other guys were just waiting for someone to suggest that they cut me loose and leave me back in the town of beginnings. He bit his lip before continuing, really, I should have offered on my own, but I just couldn't say it. I was afraid of being alone, anyway, in the corner of the bar where we were talking, someone I thought was just an NPC came up and said, if you're going to be a blacksmith with some weapon experience, there's a really cool way to make more money. Asuna and I shared a look. It hadn't occurred to us that the idea for the quick change weapon trick came from someone outside of the legend braves altogether. W.H. Who was it? I don't know the name. They only told me how to switch the weapons and left immediately after that. Haven't seen M since. It was a very strange person, too. Funny way of talking, funny outfit. Wore a hooded cape like a rain. Poncho glossy and black. Poncho. Asuna and I repeated together. Hooded capes were a fairly common item in fantasy-styled RPGs like SAO, practically a staple of the genre. Asuna herself was wearing one of her own at this very moment, though it was on the shorter side. Just minutes earlier, she had claimed she wore it for its warmth, but the real reason for those hoods was not the ability to keep out the cold and rain, but to hide her face. And whoever this man in the black poncho was, he likely wore it for the same reason. 
Asuna seemed to read my mind, and she pulled back her gray hood with a snort. Even in the empty room, lit only by a single lamp, her gleaming chestnut brown hair and pale skin seemed to give off a light of their own. Upon seeing her face clearly, Neza's wide eyes squinted, as though staring into the sun. Given that player names were not displayed by default in SAO, the main means of recognizing a person was the face, followed by the body. Eventually, the equipment and fighting style of a player might become part of their persona, but at this point in the game, everyone was rapidly switching to newer gear and even changing their main weapon skill. Someone playing a knife-wielding thief in leather armor one day might be a heavy warrior decked out in full-plate armor the next. Essentially, with an average build and a concealed face, pretty much anyone could pass anonymously. Even voices could be altered using a few special means, such as the great helm I was wearing when I approached Neza. But there might be a way to learn more identifying features of this man that taught Neza how to swindle others. He was still staring at Asuna, so I brought him back to the topic at hand. About the guy in the black poncho. Ah, uh, why yes? How did he demand the margin be paid? I mean, how did he want you to hand over his share of the money you made? I asked. Asuna nodded in understanding. If they were making cash handoffs, we could stake out the place and catch a glimpse of the man, but Neza's answer blew that possibility to smithereens. Um, actually, he didn't really say anything. Huh? What do you mean? Well, like I said, he taught me how to use quick change and the vendor's carpet to pull off the weapon switching trick, but he didn't say a word about a share, or the payment for his idea, or anything. Asuna and I stared at each other again, dumbfounded. The trick was brilliant and nearly flawless. I made sure. Neza knew my opinion of it. The trick was certainly possible back in the beta test, but not one of the thousand. Testers had come up with the idea. Whoever devised it was a creative genius. If Neza had chosen a player handle based on his own given name, or Asuna hadn't asked Argo, for info on Nataku, I would never have figured the trick out. But because of that, it was very jarring to hear that the poncho man who devised this brilliant idea would hand it over without asking for anything in return. If he hadn't asked for C.O.R., what did he stand to gain from giving his idea to the legend Braves? Clearly it wasn't out of sheer altruism. It was fraud, A. Eh? means of ripping off other players. So you're saying, he just butted into your conversation, explained how to switch weapons like that, and then disappeared? Asuna asked. Neza was about to agree, but he stopped before committing. Well, technically, he did say a bit more. A scam is a scam, so Orlando and the others weren't into the idea at first. They knew it was a crime. But then he just laughed. It wasn't put on or menacing. It was just a really pleasant laugh, like out of a movie. Pleasant laugh? Yes, it was like, like just hearing it made everything seem 
so unimportant anymore. The next thing I knew, Orlando, Beowulf, all of us were laughing with him. Then he said, we're in a game, don't you know? If we weren't supposed to do something, they'd outlawed in the programming, right? So anything you can do, you're allowed to do. Don't. You think? Th that's total nonsense. Asuna exploded before Neza. Had barely finished. That would mean you could butt in. And attack someone else's monster, or create a train that. Attack someone else, or any other thing that's completely. Against proper manners. In fact, since the anti-crime code. Is turned off outside of towns, that would mean it's totally. Okay too. She stopped mid-sentence as if afraid that saying it out. Loud might cause it come true. Without thinking, I reached out and brushed Asuna's arm, the white skin even paler than usual. In most cases, she would pull several feet away in disgust, but now, that contact grounded her emotions and the tension drained out of her. I pulled my hand away and asked Neza, was that all the poncho man said? Air, yes. We nodded to him, he stood up, said, good luck and left the bar. I haven't seen him since, he said, his eyes wandering as though searching his memory banks. Now it all seems very mysterious, after he left, the guild most certainly changed. Everyone seemed very gung-ho on the idea. I'm ashamed to admit that I decided I would rather be the centerpiece of the money-making scheme than be relegated to useless baggage, dragging everyone down. But. Expression flooded back into Neza's face. He squeezed his eyes shut and grimaced. But, the first time I tried the trick, when I broke that substitute weapon and saw the look on the customer's face, I knew. Just because it was possible within the game didn't make it right. I should have given the real sword back and explained everything but I didn't have the guts. When I went back to the hangout bar, I was going to say we should call it quits, but, but when they saw the sword I stole, they were so, so happy, and they said how great I was, and, and, and I just couldn't. Wham, he suddenly slammed his forehead down straight onto the table. Purple light flashed off the walls of the room. He did the same thing again, then again, but his HP were protected by the game code in town. He didn't know what to do. We'd prevented him from attempting suicide, he had no means of replacing the victim's belongings, and he couldn't even return to his friends. If there was one way to atone for his sins, it would be to publicly admit his actions and apologize to the player base. But I couldn't demand that he do it. I couldn't guarantee that all of the honest, upfront players fighting to free us all for Maincrad, some of whom were his victims, would forgive Neza for his actions. And I couldn't imagine the punishments they might devise for him if they didn't. The only realistic solution I could come up with was to have him go through the teleporter back to the town of Beginnings and hide himself in that vast city. Or perhaps he could reverse course, going back to fighting, and find some way to contribute through battle. 
The problem with that was that throwing knives were a total sub-skill, better for nothing more than distracting enemies. But then I remembered a rare piece of loot I had gotten from a difficult Taurus ring hurler in the labyrinth just earlier that day. It was rare, but not particularly valuable, and of no use to me, something very eccentric and long-ranged. Neza, he raised his forehead off the table an inch. I saw cheeks. Wet with tears. What's your level? I'm level 10. Then you've still only got three skill slots. What are you? Using? One-handed weapon crafting, inventory expansion, and throwing knives. I see. If I told you that I had a weapon you could use, would you be prepared to give up on crafting? On your blacksmith skill? 11, Wednesday, December 14th, 2022. The tenth day since we had beaten the boss of the first floor, and the thirty-eighth day since we'd first been trapped inside this game of death. The collective frontline players, including me and Asuna, had finished progressing through the massive labyrinth, tower brimming with muscled bullmen, and finally reached the chamber of the second-floor boss. Our raid, made up of eight different parties, was at a total of 47, just under the limit allowed by the game. Despite the loss of Diavel the Knight and those two shocked by his death to take part, the group had grown, thanks to the addition of the five warriors from the Legend Braves. Lind the Scimitar user, formerly Diavel's right-hand man, led his blue group with three parties, totaling 18 members. Once we'd cleared the second floor, and they initiated the guild quest on the next floor up, they were planning to establish the Dragon Knights Guild. The Knights part was clearly in homage to the spirit of their fallen leader, but I didn't know where the dragon came from. With another eighteen was the green group, gathered around their opposition to beta testers, led by Kibu, who swung a one-handed sword just like me, they'd already decided on their own guild name, the Aincrad Liberation Squad. That accounted for six parties and thirty-six members. Next was Agile, the massive axe-wielder, and his three friends, all muscled like he was, for some reason, Asuna the fencer, the only female in the group, and then Kurito the evil beater. That made forty-two. With the five added members of the legend braves, that made a total of forty-seven, just one under the limit. I sat in the corner of the large safe zone just outside the boss chamber, watching the separate groups check their equipment and distribute potions. I leaned over to Asuna, who was once again wearing her trademark hood, and whispered, just one more, and we'd have a full raid. True, I guess he didn't make it in time. We got to the boss chamber a lot faster than I expected, it's a tough quest to beat in just three days, I bemoaned. Asuna shot me a dirty glare. Well, from what I hear, it even took a certain someone. Three days and two nights to finish it. Three days earlier, in the village of Turan near the labyrinth, I had given Neza a special kind of range, weapon and a map. The map pointed out the location of an NPC hidden in the rocky mountains along the outer perimeter of the second 
floor, and the secret passageway to reach him. This NPC was none other than the bearded martial arts skill master who had drawn the whiskers on my cheeks that turned me into Kiriman. I asked Neza if he was prepared to give up on the weapon crafting skill he'd spent so much time on and take up martial arts instead. The weapon I'd picked up in the second floor labyrinth required both the throwing knives and martial arts skills to use. Abandoning a skill was not an easy decision to make, even when it was only a day or two of experience being lost in. The case of a blacksmith, working the skill upward, was both a matter of time and considerable money. In other MMOs, it was as easy as rolling an alternate character, but now that SAO was a one-character-per-account system by virtue of our predicament, that wasn't an option. The most rational choice was to wait until he reached the level that would open up another skill slot. Another choice might be to remove the inventory expansion skill that gave him extra room for items. But instead, in exchange for the weapon and map, I demanded that Neza remove his blacksmithing skill. In SAO's current state, attempting to balance crafting and combat was too dangerous. A player venturing into the field needed to focus everything under his control on maximizing the chances of survival, from his skill choices, to his equipment, to his inventory. Plenty of even the most well-prepared players had lost their lives because they were missing that last bit of attack strength, or armor value, or one more potion. Neza took just one deep breath before Accepting my harsh demands. As long as I can be a swordsman here, I don't need anything else, he said, then smiled, and added, but I suppose using this thing won't make me a swordsman. Surprisingly, it was Asuna who answered, everyone. Fighting to help beat this game is a swordsman. Even a pure crafter. We had guided Neza, past the battles, to the entrance of the secret passage and left him there. His level was high. Enough, and I considered inviting him to join the boss. Battle of his martial arts training finished in time, but it seemed three days wasn't enough for him to break that rock. There was no need to rush. Neza wouldn't be risking danger by attempting weapon. Fraud again. He'll be a big help in beating the third floor, I'm sure. It's a pretty good weapon if you can master it, and he'll be able to find a spot in some guild or other. One aside from the Braves, I'm guessing. Yes, I hope so, Asuna agreed. We looked across the safe. Zone at a group of five. Orlando was wearing his usual, pointed bassinet helm and a nail blade. Beowulf was the short man with the double-handed sword next to him, and the skinny spearman was Cuchulain. There were also two others that weren't present during the battle against the Bulbous Bow, Gilgamesh, who fought with a hammer, and Shield, and Enkidu, who was outfitted with leather armor and daggers. At this morning's meeting, I detected a mixture of unease and discontent among the legend braves. I had to assume it was the disappearance of Neza, their sixth member. If they had been an established guild, they could use location 
trackers to find him, but here on the second floor, guilds, were nothing but names. I could understand their concern, but I was under no obligation to explain the situation to them. After all, they'd forced Neza to undertake a week-long string of dangerous scams that easily could have led to his execution, if anything, was exposed to the public. That's all nice and good, Carito, but we shouldn't be spending our time worrying about the state of other parties. Oh? Why? I blinked. She sighed in exasperation. Lynn said we'd put the raid group together, just before the boss fight, but think about it. There are three parties for the blue team, three parties for the green team, one for the braves, and probably one last one for Agile's group. That makes eight. Oh, gee good point. I hadn't given it any thought since she mentioned it, but eight parties was the maximum for a raid. In the first boss fight, we'd had a lower number, and Asuna and I got to be in our own leftover party, but that wouldn't be an option. This time, without any magic, SAO didn't have the usual full raid. Heals and buffs, so it was quite possible for extra people to take part in the battle outside of the raid. The problem was that being outside the group meant you couldn't see the HP of the other members, and they couldn't see yours. It made gauging the proper timing of potion rotation very tricky. I had to make sure that Asuna at least made her way into Agile's party. I looked around for the Axe Warrior's distinct shape. Hey, you too. Good to see you again, came a baritone. Voice from behind me, I turned around to see the very man. I was looking for. His craggy face split into a grin, the light shining off his bald head. I hear you two have paired up. I guess I should congratulate you. Um, we're not a pair, I tried to say, but Asuna set the record straight. We're not a pair. It's just a temporary partnership. Nice to see you, Agile. Agile smiled again and looked at me, raising an eyebrow. It was a cool gesture, but it felt as though he meant it in a consoling way. I hastily cleared my throat. Why yes, well, um, that's right, so I'm guessing we're about to finalize the raid structure, since we're almost at the absolute limit for eight parties. I was planning to ask them if they would take Asuna in their party, but again, I didn't get the chance to finish. Yeah, that's what I came to ask you about, there are four of us, so why don't you two join our group? It was such a breezy, careless invitation that I couldn't help but hesitate. Um, well, that's really generous of you, but are you sure? I mean, given my standing. Asuna sighed and Agile shrugged his shoulders and threw his hands. That gesture, combined with his appearance, was clearly not Japanese, but his command of the language was perfect, so there was a strange mixture of exoticism and familiarity about the man that made him both fascinating and charismatic. What do they call you, a beater? It's only a tiny percent of people who actually call you that. Even the word beater sounded fresh and new coming from 
his lips. Most people, including me, pronounced it with a flat intonation, like cheater, but he stressed the B and softened the tur, which made it almost sound like a cool title to have. We actually have our own nickname for you. Really? What is it? Asuna asked. Agile glanced at her and grinned, the man in black. Or Blackie. She snorted. I wasn't exactly thrilled with that epithet, I hadn't chosen the color of the coat I looted from the cobalt. Boss, but even more startling to me, was that she'd actually laughed. I peered into her hood in curiosity. Asuna quickly composed her expression and gave me a familiar glare before continuing, thanks for the offer, Agile. I suppose we'll take you up on it, me and Blackie-san. Oh, come on, you're not going to run with that, are you? I protested. Asuna replied, Blackie, as in, the prompters who were all, black during a play, right? Sounds perfect for a guy who hates being in the spotlight. Oh, I see. But that's not exactly the same. I mean, if you'd prefer that I just call you Kurito Kuan all the time, I can do that. Like I said, that's not exactly the same, Agile, who grand as he watched our bickering, burst out laughing at that point. If you two are that in tune, then I'm leaving the switch timing up to you. The four of us will focus on tanking, so you guys do the damage. He held out both hands, and Asuna shook his right, while I took the left. I bowed briefly to the other three behind him, and received waves and thumbs up in return. I hadn't talked with them much at the first floor boss battle, but they all seemed to be as good-natured as Agile. I accepted Agile's party request and noted the six HP bars lined up on the left side of my view, just as we hit fifteen minutes until the battle would begin. The noise of conversation died down toward the front, so I turned to see that two players were now standing before the massive doors to the boss's chamber. One of them was Lind, decked out in silver armor, blue cape, and scimitar at his waist. The other was Kibu, with his dark armor and moss green jacket. Ugh, not another. Double leader situation, I groaned. Isn't there only one leader, by definition within the system? Asuna asked. That's a good point. As if sensing our confusion, Lind raised a hand and spoke. Loudly to the group. Unlike the area outside the first floor. Boss chamber, this was a safe zone, so there was no fear of. Taurus is coming to investigate the noise. Well, it's time. Let's start forming the raid. First, an introduction. I'm Lind, chosen to be your leader today. Greetings, everyone. Before I could even wonder how Kibu would willingly give up control, the cactus-headed man interjected, only chosen, cause you want a coin flip. Half the gathering laughed at this, while the other half looked upset. Lin shot Kibu a dirty glare, but he did not respond to the bait. The fact that we're already here, just ten days after opening this floor, is a testament to your skill and dedication. If you lend me your help, there's no way we can 
Failed to beat this boss. Let's finish the day on the third. Floor. He raised a fist, and all of those who didn't laugh at. Kibu's jibe roared in approval. With his rousing speech and long hair, formerly brown, but now dyed blue, Lin seemed to be fully accepting the role of Diavel's heir. I couldn't help but feel that here and there, hints of self-consciousness that his predecessor never displayed peeked through the facade. Now let's form the raid of the eight parties, the dragon. Knights will form teams A, B, and C. Kibu's liberation. Squad will make up teams D, E, and F, and team G will be Orlando's Braves. And team H. He looked to us in the very back. For an instant, his breezy smile seemed to vanish when his eyes met mine, but he looked past me just as quickly. We'll be the rest of you. Teams A through F will concentrate on the boss while G and H handle the mobs. This news did not come as a surprise to me. What was surprising, however, was the voice that spoke up in response. Hang on just a moment. It wasn't Agile and certainly wasn't Asuna. It was the leader of the group of five on the far wall, Orlando. When he spoke, the eyes staring out from beneath his bassinet visor were just as piercing as when they'd nearly seen through my hiding ability outside the bar. We're here to fight the boss. If you want us to rotate around, I might understand, but we're not going to just hang back and deal with mobs. His brassy voice echoed off the walls and died out, the ensuing lull filled by the fevered murmuring of the blue and green players. I could make out mutters of who do they think they are and bloody newcomers. Then it all clicked into place for me. With the disappearance of Neza, Orlando, and his team had just lost a huge source of income. This was their chance to leap out to the head of the clearers. The money earned by the raid party was equally shared between all members, but the experience points and skill boosts were not. The enormous store of experience points the boss was Worth would be distributed by the amount of damage done or blocked, and the skill proficiency gained by attacking a powerful enemy was far beyond that of a normal foe. None of that went to them if they didn't attack the boss directly. The five braves had upgraded their equipment to about the maximum it could be at this point, but their player levels were below the average of the raid. They probably saw this boss battle as the best chance to close that gap. And yet, disagreeing with the raid leader's orders wasn't going to get them anywhere. The scene could have easily turned into an ugly shouting match, but the blue and green players didn't let it get any worse than whispers. I suspected that was due to the powerful aura the legend braves were exuding. Level, stats, and skill proficiency were all hidden variables not exposed to the public, but equipment power was different. Weapons and armor augmented close to the limit began to glow with a depth that reinforced their value. At the present moment, the best any player, including me, could do was upgrade their weapon, and perhaps their shield, to that glowing state. But the Braves were a different story. 
with the massive sum of COR they reaped in. The past week, they'd been able to buy full sets of excellent equipment and power it all up. All of their gear was glowing as if under a powerful buff spell, and it created the strong impression that these five men were not to be trifled with. Of course, equipment strength was not all there was in the game. More important than anything in SAO was personal experience and the ability to react and adjust. But in the battle ahead against Baron the General Taurus, every value was important, especially armor strength. This was because General Baron used an elite version of the Taurus race's special attack. All right. In that case, Team G can join the fight against the boss, Lin said stiffly. I looked up and found myself staring right into the blue-haired man's eyes again. While his hairstyle might have been the same as the one worn by breezy affable Diavel, Lin seemed to have a significantly more obstinate side to him. He held my gaze. This time and said, according to our prior intelligence, the boss only has one accompanying mob that does not repop. I trust Team H will be able to handle that alone? Asuna, and I sucked in a sharp breath, our hackles raised, but team leader Agile waved a hand to calm us. His voice and manner stayed perfectly calm. It might be one monster, but the intel says that it's not your average mob, but more of a mid-level boss on its own. Plus, maybe it's only the one, but we don't know that for sure. That's a lot to ask of a single party. The prior intelligence they were referring to was, of course, the second-floor boss edition of Argo's strategy guide, which appeared just yesterday in Turin. It held the attack patterns and weak points of the boss and its attendant mob, but as the disclaimer on the cover said, all information was based on the beta test. The first-floor boss used katana skills that hadn't been there in the beta, and it led to the death of Diavelda. Night. We had to assume that there were alterations since the beta here, as well. In a worst-case scenario, there might be two or more of NATO the Colonel Taurus accompanying Baron instead of just one. But Lind actually agreed with Agile's rebuttal. Of course, I have no intention of repeating the mistakes of the first floor. If we spot any difference in the patterns listed in our prior intelligence, we will immediately retreat and rethink our plan. If the attendant mob is too much for one party to handle, we'll send another team to help. Will that do? It was about as much as we could hope for at this stage. Agile murmured in the affirmative, and Asuna, and I let out. The breaths we'd been holding in. Next came a review of the boss's attack patterns, and a final. Check of each team's individual strategy, leaving just two. Minutes until the scheduled fight time of two o'clock. That was only a general guideline, so nothing was stopping us. From beginning the fight slightly before, or after the hour. Lind raised his hand and said, All right, it's a bit early, but... Suddenly, he was cut off by a familiar phrase from Kibu, who had, somewhat surprisingly, kept quiet this entire time. Now, hang on just a sec. What is it, Kibu? You've been basing everything on this strategy guide so far, Lind. 
Now, all this info is coming from the info dealer who, the man in black. Or Blackie. She snorted. I wasn't exactly thrilled with that epithet, I hadn't chosen the color of the coat I looted from the cobalt. Boss, but even more startling to me, was that she'd actually. Laughed. I peered into her hood in curiosity. Asuna quickly composed her expression and gave me a familiar glare before continuing, thanks for the offer, Agile. I suppose we'll take you up on it, me and Blackie-san. Oh, come on, you're not going to run with that, are you? I protested. Asuna replied, Blackie, as in, the prompters who were all, black during a play, right? Sounds perfect for a guy who hates being in the spotlight. Oh, I see. But that's not exactly the same. I mean, if you'd prefer that I just call you Kurito Kuen all the time, I can do that. Like I said, that's not exactly the same, Agile, who grand as he watched our bickering, burst out laughing at that point. If you two are that in tune, then I'm leaving the switch timing up to you. The four of us will focus on tanking, so you guys do the damage. He held out both hands, and Asuna shook his right, while I took the left. I bowed briefly to the other three behind him, and received waves and thumbs up in return. I hadn't talked with them much at the first floor boss battle, but they all seemed to be as good-natured as Agile. I accepted Agile's party request and noted the six HP bars lined up on the left side of my view, just as we hit fifteen minutes until the battle would begin. The noise of conversation died down toward the front, so I turned to see that two players were now standing before the massive doors to the boss's chamber. One of them was Lind, decked out in silver armor, blue cape, and scimitar at his waist. The other was Kibu, with his dark armor and moss green jacket. Ugh, not another double leader situation, I groaned. Isn't there only one leader, by definition within the system? Asuna asked. That's a good point. As if sensing our confusion, Lind raised a hand and spoke loudly to the group. Unlike the area outside the first floor boss chamber, this was a safe zone, so there was no fear of Taurus is coming to investigate the noise. Well, it's time. Let's start forming the raid. First, an introduction. I'm Lind, chosen to be your leader today. Greetings, everyone. Before I could even wonder how Kibu would willingly give up control, the cactus-headed man interjected, only chosen, cause you want a coin flip. Half the gathering laughed at this, while the other half looked upset. Lin shot Kibu a dirty glare, but he did not respond to the bait. The fact that we're already here, just ten days after opening this floor, is a testament to your skill and dedication. If you lend me your help, there's no way we can fail to beat this boss. Let's finish the day on the third floor. He raised a fist, and all of those who didn't laugh at Kibu's jibe roared in approval. With his rousing speech and long hair, formerly brown, but now dyed blue, Lin seemed to be fully accepting the role of Diavel's heir. 
I couldn't help but feel that here and there, hints of self-consciousness that his predecessor never displayed peeked through the facade. Now let's form the raid. Of the eight parties, the dragon. Knights will form teams A, B, and C. Kibu's liberation. Squad will make up teams D, E, and F, and team G will be Orlando's Braves. And team H. He looked to us in the very back. For an instant, his breezy smile seemed to vanish when his eyes met mine, but he looked past me just as quickly. Will be the rest of you. Teams A through F will concentrate on the boss while G and H handle the mobs. This news did not come as a surprise to me. What was surprising, however, was the voice that spoke up in response. Hang on just a moment. It wasn't Agile and certainly wasn't Asuna. It was the leader of the group of five on the far wall, Orlando. When he spoke, the eyes staring out from beneath his bassinet visor were just as piercing as when they'd nearly seen through my hiding ability outside the bar. We're here to fight the boss. If you want us to rotate around, I might understand, but we're not going to just hang back and deal with mobs. His brassy voice echoed off the walls and died out, the ensuing lull filled by the fevered murmuring of the blue and green players. I could make out mutters of who do they think they are, and bloody newcomers. Then it all clicked into place for me. With the disappearance of Neza, Orlando, and his team had just lost a huge source of income. This was their chance to leap out to the head of the clearers. The money earned by the raid party was equally shared between all members, but the experience points and skill boosts were not the enormous store of experience points the boss was worth would be distributed by the amount of damage done or blocked, and the skill proficiency gained by attacking a powerful enemy was far beyond that of a normal foe. None of that went to them if they didn't attack the boss directly. The five braves had upgraded their equipment to about the maximum it could be at this point, but their player levels were below the average of the raid. They probably saw this boss battle as the best chance to close that gap. And yet, disagreeing with the raid leader's orders wasn't going to get them anywhere. The scene could have easily turned into an ugly shouting match, but the blue and green Players didn't let it get any worse than whispers. I suspected that was due to the powerful aura the legend. Braves were exuding. Level, stats, and skill proficiency were all hidden variables not exposed to the public, but equipment power was different. Weapons and armor augmented close to the limit began to glow with a depth that reinforced their value. At the present moment, the best any player, including me, could do was upgrade their weapon, and perhaps their shield, to that glowing state. But the Braves were a different story. With the massive sum of COR they reaped in. The past week, they'd been able to buy full sets of excellent equipment and power it all up. All of their gear was glowing as if under a powerful buff spell, and it created the strong impression that these five men were not to be trifled. With of course, equipment strength was not all there was in the 
game. More important than anything in SAO was personal experience and the ability to react and adjust. But in the battle ahead against Baron the General Taurus, every value was important, especially armor strength. This was because General Baron used an elite version of the Taurus race's special attack. All right, in that case, Team G can join the fight against the boss, Lin said stiffly. I looked up and found myself staring right into the blue-haired man's eyes again. While his hairstyle might have been the same as the one worn by breezy affable Diavel, Lin seemed to have a significantly more obstinate side to him. He held my gaze. This time and said, according to our prior intelligence, the boss only has one accompanying mob that does not repop. I trust Team H will be able to handle that alone? Asuna, and I sucked in a sharp breath, our hackles raised, but Team Leader Agile waved a hand to calm us. His voice and manner stayed perfectly calm. It might be one monster, but the intel says that it's not. Your average mob, but more of a mid-level boss on its own. Plus, maybe it's only the one, but we don't know that for. Sure. That's a lot to ask of a single party. The prior intelligence they were referring to was, of course, the second-floor boss edition of Argo's strategy guide, which appeared just yesterday in Turun. It held the attack patterns and weak points of the boss and its attendant mob, but as the disclaimer on the cover said, all information was based on the beta test. The first-floor boss used katana skills that hadn't been there in the beta, and it led to the death of Diavelda. Night. We had to assume that there were alterations since the beta here, as well. In a worst-case scenario, there might be two or more of NATO the Colonel Taurus accompanying Baron instead of just one. But Lind actually agreed with Agile's rebuttal. Of course, I have no intention of repeating the mistakes of the first floor, if we spot any difference in the patterns. Listed in our prior intelligence, we will immediately retreat and rethink our plan. If the attendant mob is too much for one party to handle, we'll send another team to help. Will that do? It was about as much as we could hope for at this stage. Agile murmured in the affirmative, and Asuna and I let out the breaths we'd been holding in. Next came a review of the boss's attack patterns and a final check of each team's individual strategy, leaving just two minutes until the scheduled fight time of two o'clock. That was only a general guideline, so nothing was stopping us from beginning the fight slightly before or after the hour. Lind raised his hand and said, All right, it's a bit early, but... Suddenly, he was cut off by a familiar phrase from Kibu, who had, somewhat surprisingly, kept quiet this entire time. Now, hang on just a sec. What is it, Kibu? You've been basing everything on this strategy guide so far, Lind. Now, all this info is coming from the info dealer who, instant, the soldier was free, and the blue shirt member of Lin's group bent over to pick up his weapon. No. Get back, here comes the next one. I wanted to yell, but I held it in. He wouldn't hear me at this distance, and my companions and Team H would confuse it for an order. 
directed at them. After a brief but powerful slant to Colonel Nato's ribs, I looked to see General Baron raising his hammer again. Flum. A second numbing detonation. The hammer struck the same spot as the last one, and more. Yellow lightning shot forth. Again, they swallowed the spearman attempting to pick up his weapon. But while he'd been standing upright last time, he fell down. To the floor in this instance. The visual effect that surrounded his avatar was not yellow, but pale green. This was not a stun, but a more powerful and dangerous debuff, paralysis. It was the true terror of the Taurus's numbing skills, the second hit in succession would turn the stun to a paralyzing effect. Unlike a stun, paralysis did not disappear after a few seconds. It wasn't indefinite either, but even the weakest effect would last 10 minutes, a full 600 seconds. Obviously, no one could survive a battle while prone for that length of time, so healing items were necessary. The main methods of recovery were healing potions or purification crystals. The latter were impossible to find until later in the game, so potions were the only choice. However, paralysis left only the dominant hand of the player able to move, and slowly, at that, so even pulling a bottle out of a pouch was a trial. Crawling out of the bosses. Attack range was completely out of the question. I told them not to pick up their weapons, but wait until they were sure the boss wasn't going to attack twice. But there was no use complaining to myself. Besides, picking up a dropped weapon was just human instinct. I couldn't count the number of times I'd done the same thing and suffered additional hits during the beta. I only learned to deal with that particular challenge with a cool head once. I gained the quick change mod so that I could call up a replacement from my inventory. Baron callously targeted the paralyzed spearman and prepared to stomp him with a massive foot. Fortunately, his party members quickly intervened to pull him out of harm's way. I heaved a sigh of relief, but when I saw where they were taking him, my eyes bulged. Lined up along the back wall were already seven or eight. Players, clutching green potions in their stiff hands, and waiting for the effect to wear off. The entire time that we'd been carefully chipping away at Colonel Nato, a large number of the main force was suffering from secondary numbing. Things aren't going well in the main fight, Agile rumbled, as he returned from his potion rotation. I quickly responded, yes, but the more they fight, the more they'll get accustomed to the rhythm. I haven't seen any differences from the beta yet, so I think. We'll be all right, I was about to finish, but Asuna cut me off. With a sobering note. But Carido, if any more of them get paralyzed, it'll make a temporary retreat much harder. I tensed and clenched the handle of my anneal blade. The weapon wouldn't fall unless I intentionally dropped it, or an external factor caused me to fumble it, but my Subconscious was working in overdrive after witnessing the prior scene with the spearmen. The boss chambers in Aincrad, at least as far as I'd seen, did not lock the players inside once the battle had begun. If things got hairy, it was always possible to beat a hasty 
retreat. That didn't mean it was a simple matter, of course, there was a considerable distance between the battle zone and the door, so if everyone took off running at once, the boss would catch up to us in no time and cause delays, stunning, and ultimately, death. So in a way, escaping from the boss chamber required a trickier coordinated effort than actually fighting the adversary. Could we even pull it off, burdened by a large number of paralyzed fighters? For one thing, lifting an immobile player in your arms to carry them out required a significant strength value. I couldn't lift Asuna up with my skinny arms when she had passed out in the first floor labyrinth, so I had had to drag her out using a sleeping bag, an emergency measure still fresh in my memory. From what I could see, about four-fifths of Lind and Kibu's forces were balanced or speed-first fighters, with only a few pure-strength tanks. As Asuna pointed out, if many more players got paralyzed, it would be much harder to disengage. We might need to refocus and prioritize dealing with the numbing, I said, stepping out of the way of a three-part hammer combo from NATO. Asuna nimbly matched my steps. Beside me. I agree. But if we start calling out orders for the main force, it's only going to confuse the chain of command. We need to get our ideas to Lin's ears. Her hazel eyes darted over the HP of Team H, and then. Colonel Nato. We can handle him with just five. Go and talk to Lind, Carido. Um, A are you sure? Yeah, no problem, boomed Agile, who must have. Overheard. The four of us can handle guarding for now. You've easily got two or three minutes to go talk with him. I turned back to look at the chocolate-skinned warrior and his friends, who seemed resolute, and I made up my mind. The key to defeating Baron was to keep his paralysis out of the equation. The battle was holding up for now, thanks to our large number and high average level, but if this was the same party that tackled him in the beta, we'd be wiped out by now. All right, just for a bit. I'll be right back. Before I left, I unleashed a vertical arc into NATO's back as he stood frozen after missing with a big attack and sped off for my target. I shot across the Colosseum-styled chamber, more than a hundred yards across, and headed for the main battle in the back. My pasty, skinny real body back home would be lucky to break 14 seconds in the hundred-meter dash, but the agility-heavy Corrido crossed the space in ten flat. My boot. Heel screeched to a halt as I lined up next to a blue cape at the rear. For a moment, it occurred to me that this was the first time I'd ever been face to face with Lind, leader of this raid, and former confidant of Diavel the Knight. Ten days earlier, just after we defeated the previous boss, he'd screamed, Why did you abandon Diavel to die? You knew the moves the boss was using. If you'd told us that, Information to start with, Diavel wouldn't have died. I hadn't apologized, I'd met him with a cold smile. I'm a beater. Don't you ever insult my skill, by calling me a former tester. And having said my piece, I had put on the coat of. Midnight I was still wearing, and left the first floor boss.
chamber. I hadn't interacted with Lynn since that very moment. So it shouldn't have been a surprise that when I sidled up next to him, Lynn's first reaction was a grimace of disgust. His narrow eyes went wide, his blade-sharp chin trembled, and his thin lips went even thinner. But that manifestation of his true emotions soon sank back beneath his skin. It bothered me that both he and Kibu were attempting to mask their true feelings about me. Though it also wasn't my business to care about it, but now was not the time to worry about feelings. I ordered you to handle the sub-boss. Why are you, he, growled before I interrupted with the line I'd prepared, let's regroup. If any more members get paralyzed, it's going to make escape nearly impossible. The raid leader looked back at the seven or eight players, waiting to recover, then at the state of the fight itself. Following his lead, I checked the HP bar of General Baron. Out of his five bars, they'd lowered the third to the halfway point. We were already half done with the boss. We're halfway there. Why would we need to retreat now? I had to admit, there was a part of me that thought it would be a waste to give up now. In the ten minutes since we had started the battle, several people had been paralyzed, but no one's HP had fallen into the red zone, and the pace of our damage against the boss was better than expected. There was more than a small chance that we could continue to press on and make it through, but as if seeing through my hesitation, a voice rang out from behind us. How's about we pull back if one more person gets paralyzed? I turned around to see Kibu's familiar, light brown spikes of hair. No doubt he was also filled with a powerful disgust at me for being a trident true beta tester, but the look on his face was honest and forthright. Everyone's got the hang of the numbing range and timing. They're focused, and morale is high. We've been pounding. Paralysis and healing potions, so if we stop now, we might not have the supplies to give it another shot until tomorrow. Again, I let my mind race for half a second before reaching a conclusion. The most important thing here was not the number of tries. Or the sum of spent resources but human life. We had to. Instant, the soldier was free, and the blue shirt member of Lin's group bent over to pick up his weapon. No. Get back, here comes the next one. I wanted to yell, but I held it in. He wouldn't hear me at this distance, and my companions and team H would confuse it for an order directed at them. After a brief but powerful slant to Colonel Nato's ribs, I looked to see General Baron raising his hammer again. Flum. A second numbing detonation. The hammer struck the same spot as the last one, and more. Yellow lightning shot forth. Again, they swallowed the spearman attempting to pick up his weapon. But while he'd been standing upright last time, he fell down to the floor in this instance. The visual effect that surrounded his avatar was not yellow, but pale green. This was not a stun, but a more powerful and dangerous debuff, paralysis. It was the true terror of the Taurus's numbing skills, the second hit in succession would turn the stun to a paralyzing effect. 
Unlike a stun, paralysis did not disappear after a few seconds. It wasn't indefinite either, but even the weakest effect would last 10 minutes, a full 600 seconds. Obviously, no one could survive a battle while prone for that length of time, so healing items were necessary. The main methods of recovery were healing potions or purification crystals. The latter were impossible to find until later in the game, so potions were the only choice. However, paralysis left only the dominant hand of the player able to move, and slowly, at that, so even pulling a bottle out of a pouch was a trial. Crawling out of the bosses. Attack range was completely out of the question. I told them not to pick up their weapons, but wait until they were sure the boss wasn't going to attack twice. But there was no use complaining to myself. Besides, picking up a dropped weapon was just human instinct. I couldn't count the number of times I'd done the same thing and suffered additional hits during the beta. I only learned to deal with that particular challenge with a cool head once. I gained the quick change mod so that I could call up a replacement from my inventory. Baron callously targeted the paralyzed spearman and prepared to stomp him with a massive foot. Fortunately, his party members quickly intervened to pull him out of harm's way. I heaved a sigh of relief, but when I saw where they were taking him, my eyes bulged. Lined up along the back wall were already seven or eight. Players, clutching green potions in their stiff hands and waiting for the effect to wear off. The entire time that we'd been carefully chipping away at Colonel Nato, a large number of the main force was suffering from secondary numbing. Things aren't going well in the main fight, Agile rumbled, as he returned from his potion rotation. I quickly responded, yes, but the more they fight, the more they'll get accustomed to the rhythm. I haven't seen any differences from the beta yet, so I think we'll be all right. I was about to finish, but Asuna cut me off with a sobering note. But Carido, if any more of them get paralyzed, it'll make a temporary retreat much harder. I tensed and clenched the handle of my anneal blade. The weapon wouldn't fall unless I intentionally dropped it, or an external factor caused me to fumble it, but my Subconscious was working in overdrive after witnessing the prior scene with the spearmen. The boss chambers in Aincrad, at least as far as I'd seen, did not lock the players inside once the battle had begun. If things got hairy, it was always possible to beat a hasty retreat. That didn't mean it was a simple matter, of course, there was a considerable distance between the battle zone and the door, so if everyone took off running at once, the boss would catch up to us in no time and cause delays, stunning, and ultimately, death. So in a way, escaping from the boss chamber required a trickier coordinated effort than actually fighting the adversary. Could we even pull it off, burdened by a large number of paralyzed fighters? For one thing, lifting an immobile player in your arms to Carry them out required a significant strength value. I couldn't lift. Asuna up with my skinny arms when she had passed out in the first floor labyrinth, so I had had to drag her out using a sleeping bag, an emergency measure still fresh in my 
memory. From what I could see, about four-fifths of Lind and Kibu's forces were balanced or speed-first fighters, with only a few pure-strength tanks. As Asuna pointed out, if many more players got paralyzed, it would be much harder to disengage. We might need to refocus and prioritize dealing with the numbing, I said, stepping out of the way of a three-part hammer combo from NATO. Asuna nimbly matched my steps. Beside me. I agree. But if we start calling out orders for the main force, it's only going to confuse the chain of command. We need to get our ideas to Lin's ears. Her hazel eyes darted over the HP of Team H, and then. Colonel Nato. We can handle him with just five. Go and talk to Lind, Carido. Um, A, are you sure? Yeah, no problem, boomed Agile, who must have. Overheard. The four of us can handle guarding for now. You've easily got two or three minutes to go talk with him. I turned back to look at the chocolate-skinned warrior and his friends, who seemed resolute, and I made up my mind. The key to defeating Baron was to keep his paralysis out of the equation. The battle was holding up for now, thanks to our large number and high average level, but if this was the same party that tackled him in the beta, we'd be wiped out by now. All right, just for a bit. I'll be right back. Before I left, I unleashed a vertical arc into NATO's back as he stood frozen after missing with a big attack and sped off for my target. I shot across the Colosseum-styled chamber, more than a hundred yards across, and headed for the main battle in the back. My pasty, skinny real body back home would be lucky to break 14 seconds in the 100-meter dash, but the agility-heavy Corrido crossed the space in 10 flat. My boot. Heels screeched to a halt as I lined up next to a blue cape at the rear. For a moment, it occurred to me that this was the first time I'd ever been face-to-face -face with Lind, leader of this raid, and former confidant of Diavel the Knight. Ten days earlier, just after we defeated the previous boss, he'd screamed, Why did you abandon Diavel to die? You knew the moves the boss was using. If you'd told us that information to start with, Diavel wouldn't have died. I hadn't apologized, I'd met him with a cold smile. I'm a beater. Don't you ever insult my skill by calling me a former tester. And having said my piece, I had put on the coat of Midnight I was still wearing, and left the first floor boss. Chamber. I hadn't interacted with Lynn since that very moment. So it shouldn't have been a surprise that when I sidled up next to him, Lynn's first reaction was a grimace of disgust. His narrow eyes went wide, his blade-sharp chin trembled, and his thin lips went even thinner. But that manifestation of his true emotions soon sank back beneath his skin. It bothered me that both he and Kibu were attempting to mask their true feelings about me. Though it also wasn't my business to care about it, but now was not the time to worry about feelings. I ordered you to handle the sub-boss. Why are you, he, growled before I interrupted with the line I'd prepared, let's regroup. If any more members get paralyzed, it's 
going to make escape nearly impossible. The raid leader looked back at the seven or eight players, waiting to recover, then at the state of the fight itself. Following his lead, I checked the HP bar of General Baron. Out of his five bars, they'd lowered the third to the halfway. Point, we were already half done with the boss. We're halfway there. Why would we need to retreat now? I had to admit, there was a part of me that thought it would be a waste to give up now. In the ten minutes since we had started the battle, several people had been paralyzed, but no one's HP had fallen into the red zone, and the pace of our damage against the boss was better than expected. There was more than a small chance that we could continue to press on and make it through, but as if seeing through my hesitation, a voice rang out from behind us. How's about we pull back if one more person gets paralyzed? I turned around to see Kibu's familiar, light brown spikes of hair. No doubt he was also filled with a powerful disgust at me for being a trident true beta tester, but the look on his face was honest and forthright. Everyone's got the hang of the numbing range and timing. They're focused and morale is high. We've been pounding. Paralysis and healing potions, so if we stop now, we might not have the supplies to give it another shot until tomorrow. Again, I let my mind race for half a second before reaching a conclusion. The most important thing here was not the number of tries or the sum of spent resources but human life. We had to.